A reading from Jonah chapter 3. Then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and deliver the message I have given you. This time Jonah obeyed the Lord's command and went to Nineveh, a city so large it took three days to see it all. On the day Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds, Forty days from now Nineveh will be destroyed. The people of Nineveh believed God's message, and from the greatest to the least they declared a fast and put on burlap to show their sorrow. When the king of Nineveh heard what Jonah was saying, he stepped down from his throne and took off his royal robes. He dressed himself in burlap and sat on a heap of ashes. Then the king and his nobles sent this decree throughout the city. No one, not even the animals from your herds and flocks, may eat or drink anything at all. People and animals alike must wear garments of mourning, and everyone must pray earnestly to God. They must turn from their evil ways and stop all their violence. Who can tell? Perhaps even yet God will change his mind and hold back his fierce anger from destroying us. When God saw what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out the destruction he had threatened. Yes, thank Andrew Matson for reading for us this morning. He said, I hate public speaking. I want nothing to do with it. So I thought, let's get him up and read in front of 2,000 people. That's what we do here. We raise people up to do hard things. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Hosanna. Uh, my name is Jared Van Vorst. And uh, for the last time, I get to say to you, I'm the Lakeville campus pastor. And for those of you who don't know, it's because uh, we feel like God has called us to go work at a church in Michigan, in Canton, Michigan. And I'm going to share a little bit more about that uh, later on. But um, our, our hearts are full, and it's been a long and beautiful and amazing weekend to be able to uh, have this opportunity to start to say goodbye. Um, but also, that means that this is my last time preaching here, and, uh, and so Ryan said, do whatever you want and go for three hours if you want to. So I'm totally kidding. The new people are freaking out right now. No, I'm, I'm going to try to keep on time, and uh, it's been such an honor. I, I just want to say that too. It's been an honor to be one of your pastors uh, for close to 13 years and, um, and just do a lot of amazing things alongside of you. Uh, even just this last week, there's been some cool things that have happened. I got to do a variety of different things from a house blessing to sitting bedside with uh, Elizabeth Bakowitz, who uh, was up on this stage just a few months ago talking about uh, her battle with brain cancer and how she is still trusting in God. And now she has, uh, she met Jesus yesterday. And so she is with him and just got to be with her husband. And so just all kinds of uh, emotions. And then just yesterday, I got to do a, um, a wedding for Caitlin and Eric and get them started off in their new life. Uh, most of my time here was spent in student ministries. And so I thought it would be appropriate to have a former student uh, read the scripture this morning, uh, Andrew. I've known him ever since he was in sixth grade. And so now to see him, he's taller than me even, uh, and uh, just a good guy and growing in his faith and an amazing drummer. And so um, there's been a whirlwind of emotions. And so it's been such an honor to be part of this. We're going to go in, uh, in Jonah chapter three in just a second. I want to give us kind of a background of where we've been. We've been in the series called Jonah, the one that almost got away. And there's a reason for that uh, because Jonah is seen as one at, who almost gets away from the mission that he was called to do. He, uh, he goes to give a message to the city Nineveh and Nineveh, we're going to find out, is a city that almost gets away from God's mercy and yet he pulls them in. So we're going to talk about that. Uh, but there's something that we need to get on the same page 
with in terms of this book called Jonah. It's a prophetic book. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, uh, maybe you've come across books like Isaiah and Jeremiah, where it's these, uh, these kind of heroes and giants of the faith who speak on behalf of God. That's what prophecy is. Um, and, and so it's a lot of the books of them telling what God's message is to people. But Jonah's a little bit different. It's written more so about Jonah and, and sort of his uh, idiocy, if I could put it that way. He's kind of a, he's, he's sort of a lame prophet, and we're going to find that out in just a, in, in just a second. Um, but also, it's written with a different kind of genre. And, uh, and I want to tell you about that in just a minute. I want to also mention that the ushers are passing baskets. And uh, yeah, sorry, it's my last sermon. I'm forgetting stuff. What, you know, this is how it goes. Um, but I want to say thank you for helping to multiply the hope and heartbeat of Jesus through your giving. And uh, I think it connects to all of the ministry that we get to be a part of all the things that I mentioned that happened just for me in this week. And so thank you for your giving. I'll just say it since also it's my last week. Just give big, you know, give more. I don't know. Give joyfully, give cheerfully. No, so uh, Jonah is a, it's, it's a different kind of genre of prophetic books, unlike some of the other ones, because it's what, what's called narrative comedy or satire. For those of you who are familiar with uh, a publication called The Onion, uh, it's, it's written as kind of a joke, actually. It's about real people, real places, real things, uh, but the event itself maybe isn't real. It's, it's sort of a fake story. But ultimately, it's not so much about whether or not the story is real. It's actually drawing your attention to something greater that's going on, a greater uh, idea of what's happening in society. And it causes you to think differently about those people, places, and things. Jonah is operating in the same way, or at least the author who writes Jonah is trying to do this very same thing. It's narrative comedy. It's trying to draw the audience in to think about things differently, to think about God differently, and to think about their view of the world differently. And so we're going to go in through this. Um, the last thing I want to tell you about Jonah is because the audience uh, is, is prepared for this, they also know a little bit about Jonah before they're even going to read it or hear the word read to them. And so Jonah shows up in one other place in the Bible. It's really small. It's a story in 2 Kings. And it's a story about this king of Israel, Jeroboam II. And he's a bad king. He's a horrible king in the eyes of God because he doesn't fulfill the task that is put on him and the whole nation of Israel, which is to, uh, you are blessed to be a blessing to the nations. Not just, it's not just for you. It's for the people around you, the people that aren't like you. And Jeroboam doesn't carry out this task. Well, well, Jonah has a similar mindset as Jeroboam. And Jonah is Jeroboam's prophetic advisor, if you will. And so both of these men have this sort of nationalistic or ethnocentric mindset of God and of the world. They're, they're totally off. And so Jonah gives Jeroboam this prophecy in Jeroboam's favor to continue in this nationalistic, ethnocentric Mindset. So already, already when the audience is about to hear this story be read to them, they already have a preconceived idea of what Jonah is like. He's kind of a shady dude. He's kind of a, kind of a bad prophet. And so we continue in this story. He's been launched from Joppa. He goes in the wrong direction of where God told him to go. Uh, but then eventually he ends up in a belly of a giant fish, which is kind of weird for us to think about as modern thinkers. But this is where he ends up in darkness, and then he is spit out, and this is where we pick up the story. Chapter 3, then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time, get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. 
and deliver the message I have given you. This is what I want you to see. Verse three, this time Jonah obeyed the Lord's command and went to Nineveh, a city so large that it took three days to see it all. It took three days for him to take a tour of the city. Now, Nineveh, if you're just joining us in this series, Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria, which at the time in the ancient world is one of the most violent, uh, evil, wicked pagan cities in the time. Super violent, did a lot of torture, a, lot of, a major scary place. But it's also a, a very big city, and so it takes them three days in all just to, to circle the city and to tour it. It's a dark city. This three days, and you're going to see this all throughout Scripture, is that these numbers and days, uh, they, they all have connotations to them. This idea of three days has some connections even within the book of Jonah. Uh, if you were here the first, uh, or sorry, the second week, uh, just, just this last week, he was in the belly of a fish for how many days? For three days in darkness. Uh, if you go all the way back to the Genesis story, the creation account on the third day is when God separates the land and the sea. And this whole story takes place around the sea. But in the ancient world, they had an understanding of the sea that the sea was sort of the underworld, the darkness, the evil world. Even in the beginning of Genesis, it talks about the spirit of God hovered over the waters or the chaos. If you fast forward all the way to Jesus in the New Testament, we get that Jesus uh, died, he's crucified, and then he is in darkness. He descended into darkness like we just sang about. He descended into darkness for how many days? For three days. It's synonymous, this number of three, this amount of time, three days of being in darkness. And so Jonah is now in in and around this dark city, spiritually dark city. And it takes him three days to take a tour. We're going to move on to verse four. On the day Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. We get another number here, 40 days. Just take you through a couple of the connotations there that we see all throughout scripture that's intentionally there. 40 days, we see in the very beginning in Genesis, once again, we see with the story of Noah. If you grew up learning about the story of Noah, he gets on a boat and it rains for 40 days and 40 nights. It's a period of waiting for this rain to come and the floods to come up. And then uh, fast forward a little bit to the number 40 in the book of Exodus where the people of God, the Israelites, they escape Egypt where they're in slavery uh, for 430 years, and then they are stuck in the wilderness before they ultimately end up at their end destination. They're stuck there for 40 years. Again, fast forward to Jesus. And Jesus in the New Testament, before he even begins his ministry, he's in a waiting period called the wilderness. For how long? 40 days and 40 nights. The writer is doing something intentionally here for the audience for the, the hearers, the readers to pick up on these things, that they all have uh, these symbols, uh, synonymous symbols attached to them. And we're supposed to pay attention to what's going on here. But here's the thing. This is like the worst sermon ever. 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. Amen, peace, see ya. Like that's it. That's, that's what he gives. Uh, eight words in English. It's actually five words in Hebrew. So some of you were hoping to come today and hopefully only get eight words from me in English and then be gone. Uh, you're going to get a few more. I hope that's okay. But this is what he gives. This is a horrible sermon. And part of the reason is because he only preaches about destruction. 
which isn't like this, hey, I want to put my hope in Jesus now. You know, it's just like, you're going to be destroyed. In 40, in 40 days, Lakeville's going to be destroyed. See ya. Uh, it, it's it's no, making no mention of why. Uh, it makes no mention of what's going on that's wrong. It makes no mention of God. It makes no mention of any kind of response that they're supposed to have. Just says, in 40 days, your city is going to be destroyed. It's a bad sermon. Uh, but Jonah is just, he's just kind of doing it. He's just kind of going through the motions and then he wants to go off and, uh, and be by himself again. So he, he doesn't really seem all that concerned. But either way, either way, something happens. And it goes on to verse five. The people of Nineveh believed God's message, not Jonah, but God's message. And from the greatest to the least, they declared a fast and put on burlap to show their sorrow. This is, these are all activities that are synonymous with repentance, to turn or to transform, to change their ways. So regardless of Jonah's poor sermon, they still feel like they need to take action. They still feel like they need to have a, a repentant heart. Just like the sailors did in chapter one. They don't have any knowledge of God. They don't, uh, they don't worship the God that Jonah worships. Yet for some reason, they feel like they want to cry out to God, save us. Save us for this man's irresponsibility. And now once again, these people who have no knowledge of the God Yahweh are now putting their hope in this God. Even though Jonah makes no mention of who he is or what they're supposed to do. This is what they do. In verse six, when the king, even the king gets involved here, when the king of Nineveh heard what Jonah was saying, he stepped down from his throne and took off his royal robes. He dressed himself in burlap and sat on a heap of ashes. This is huge in an ancient culture. An ancient culture that actually believed that kings, especially in pagan empires and other known nations at the time, your king was actually considered basically a divine being. They believed that their kings were a god in a sense. And so this king essentially gives up his godlike qualities, characters. He dethrones himself. And he humbles himself. And he even participates in this repentant activity. He dresses himself in burlap and sits on ashes. This seems like weird behavior to you and I, to modern people. But this is an activity, something tangible, physical for them to do. To begin to identify with this discomfort. To, to fully enter into this repentant stage. To say we've got to change our ways. But then check this out. It's not just the king. It's the whole city. Verse seven, then the king and his nobles sent this de decree throughout the city. No one, not even the animals from your herds and flocks may eat or drink anything at all. So this is a, a whole citywide fast, a whole citywide repentance that's taking place, which I think is important for us to say um, that this, this whole thing that we're doing, this thing called faith and Christianity and the kingdom of God is not just about me. It's not just about you. It's not just this individualistic mindset that we have or this individualistic connection that we have with God, but that it actually affects those around us. Who we are as people and how we behave actually has an impact on the collective, on the community. And so 
what we see here in an ancient culture is the whole king, or the, the king uh, encourages the entire city to participate in this. What would that look like if we as a nation <laughs> collectively uh, took part in confession and repentance to say we've, we've gone wrong here? I think some amazing transformation could take place. And this is what he says, that people and animals alike must wear garments of mourning. I wonder how they put together the animals' clothing, but that's another story. And everyone must pray earnestly to God. Everyone. Pray earnestly to God. They must turn from their evil ways and stop all of their violence. I think this is a, a key part for us to, to look into. That repentance is somehow synonymous with nonviolence. For, for this culture, absolutely, that's the case. This would have been a, a radical shift for them. It's a very, a very violent, very bar, uh, barbaric culture at the time. And so to turn from violence as a pagan empire in this time, in this space, is a massive deal. I wonder, I wonder if we have any issue with that in 2019 in our culture. Sometimes they, I think we live and breathe violence. We have a thirst and an addiction to it. Sometimes violence in our actions, in our government. Sometimes it's in our words toward one another. We have violent things to say to one another, to destroy one another, to, to tear down people. And yet repentance as a follower of Jesus looks like turning from nonviolence. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers you actually make peace as a follower of Jesus because those are the children of God. In our teaching statement, we talk about this, that we are to resist violence. We don't participate in it because it's the antithesis of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We pursue a ministry of nonviolence. That's what repentance looks like. And then verse nine, the king says this, who can tell, who knows? Perhaps even yet God will change his mind and hold back his fierce anger from destroying us. So this king who has no knowledge of this God called Yahweh, Jonah's God, somehow thinks that maybe there's a possibility that if we reach out to him, that if we pray, that if we fast, that if we change our ways, that, that God will change his mind and won't bring about destruction. How, how on earth would this king even know about this? Because Jonah's sermon makes no mention that this God uh, would, would do anything about this. And yet somehow there's this innate sense that maybe, maybe this God will, will change his mind and we won't be destroyed. And then check out the last verse, verse 10. When God saw what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind. And did not carry out the destruction he had threatened. For those of you that have grown up in the church. This idea of God changing his mind. Might feel a little unsettling. Because sometimes we've talked about. And I've grown up in church too. And with the Bible. And we've always talked about. Well God is unchanging. He never changes. He's always the same. Yesterday, today and forever. But here it says that God changes his mind. What I want to do for a little bit of the time is just leave you with a whole bunch of questions. I think sometimes we think that pastors, uh, when we come to church, they're just supposed to stand up there and give us all the answers that, uh, to the questions that we have in life. 
And, and that's not entirely true. I think if, if any case, we're supposed to give you the tools for you to wrestle with this faith and to wrestle with the word of God because it's not this easy document. It's an ancient yet relevant text to us today. But it requires us to get into it a little bit and to do some study, to understand and to wrestle with who God is and what he's trying to tell us about ourselves and about the world around us. And so I wanna, I wanna take a moment to, to leave you with a couple maybe unsettling questions and maybe you'll have more questions than when you came in. And I actually hope that's the case because I think that's healthy for us as followers of Jesus. So I wanna ask you a question is, did God change his mind? Did God really change his mind? And are we okay with that? Can God change his mind? Does he go into a situation thinking the outcome's gonna look one way, but then somehow we get involved with that or we pray or we do something and then that activity changes God's mind? Is that how the divine world works? Or, or what about this? What if the writer is actually doing something intentionally here? See, all throughout the Old Testament, the people of God, as well as the pagan world, all had an understanding of the divine world, that the gods were somehow angry or frustrated with them, that the gods were filled with anger and wrath and destruction. And it's no different here because Jonah has this view too, that, that God's going to come, he's going to destroy the city because they're evil. And, and so that's just the, prev, uh, the prevailing thought about the divine world is that gods are angry and this God is no different. And yet, the writer takes us all the way up to that point only to show us that God's default mode is mercy. Here's another question to wrestle with. What if God was never planning destruction to begin with? What if his plan was mercy from the very beginning? And yet again, the writer is calling us to see that, to come face to face with this idea that we have always had, that God is a God of wrath and anger and destruction, only to be like, whoa, I was way off. I was way off. Because I'll tell you this, it happens when Jesus shows up on the scene and begins to give this sermon. You have heard it said, you have thought it was like this, but I tell you this. Jesus is constantly giving you a new image of what God is actually like, not what you think he's like. And, and that's challenging, especially when we go all throughout the Old Testament. Of course, we're going to think God is a God of destruction and violence and barbarism, only to find out that Jesus actually looks completely the opposite. So is it possible that the ancient view of God was incomplete? It just wasn't complete yet until Jesus came. And we saw a rounded out view of who God is. Is that possible? I think about it like this. Some of you have grown up in churches that have maybe been a little bit destructive where there have been preachers and pastors who have talked about God in this way, that God is out to get you, that God is angry with you, that God is filled with wrath and you walked away with more fear than you had love and grace in your life. And maybe it scarred you and maybe it wounded you to the point where you didn't even think you could step back into a church building again. I just want to say, I am sorry, because that's an incomplete view of who God is and what his character is. God is a God of mercy. And I think the writer is trying to make our attention a little bit more intensified to God's mercy in this story. Or what about this? Was God the one that was planning their destruction 
Or was it possible that this city was left to their own destruction? Let me tell you about it like this. I have three kids that are eight, six, and six. That's twins. Don't try to do the math in your head, okay? Um, and, and so they're just in this season now uh, where, you know, they're constantly fighting. Just, just so you know, just because I, um, I'm a pastor doesn't mean my kids are constantly like reading their Bibles and praying the whole day. They do sometimes, uh, but most of the time they're just fighting over toys. And we have three of the same exact toy, and yet one has this different quality, and so they're all fighting for that one toy. Or they're fighting over what show to watch. And so then my wife and I are sitting in the other room, sick of hearing them yelling and screaming at each other, and we're wondering, okay, do we just step in and intervene and just try to fix it right away, or, or do we let them try to self-correct? How many of you parents have done this before? Raise your hands. Hopefully you have let your kids try to figure some things out along the way. Now they're at this age uh, where we hopefully have given them enough tools for them to be able to figure that out. Now, if there's blood or there's like holes in the wall or tears, you know, crocodile tears, then we get involved. But sometimes we try to say, all right, let's just let them figure it out. Or we'll even yell from the other room while we're taking a nap, "Uh, figure it out. And then we go back to sleep. And here's the thing, sometimes they do. Sometimes they're, they correct their behavior. And maybe that has to do with some of the tools that we've given them to, to kind of figure out how to say I'm sorry, how to forgive one another, and hopefully that's, that's working and that's being planted within them. But then I also wonder about this. You know, we're talking about a pagan city like Nineveh. They have no knowledge of God. They have no tools for how to relate to God. And yet they carry out these actions that would make it look like they have those tools. So I wonder, is it possible that regardless of you and I and our connection or our knowledge of God, is it possible that God has wired every one of us to have this inner sense or knowledge of who God is and his character? That maybe it's possible. Who knows? Maybe God will change his mind. Who knows? Maybe God is a God of mercy, not of destruction but of life and love and grace and mercy. It's incredibly important that we wrestle with these questions because this is what forms our faith. And it makes us mature in our knowledge of God and then how we treat one another as well. And then the last question I want to leave you with is the people's uh, prayer. They pray to God. They, They seek out God. And so I want to ask you, Is it possible that their prayers changed God's mind? That they actually had an influence on what God was planning to do? And then maybe even the greater question is, is do our prayers affect God? So many of you have have prayed for things that you haven't received maybe, or at least you haven't seen the outcome happen in the way that you were hoping for. Maybe there was a different outcome. I think there's an incredible, helpfully, uh, incredibly helpful quote from one of my favorite uh, theologians. He's a Danish philosopher. His name's Soren Kierkegaard. Don't try to say that five times. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard says this thing. He says, the function of prayer is not to influence God, but rather to change the nature of the one who prays. Now, I think that's actually a bold statement. I don't think that's nuanced enough. So I added my own bracketed words. I'll say it one more time. The function of prayer is not only to to influence God, but rather to also change the nature of the one who prays. 
And in getting to know many of you in 13 years, my, my guess is that that's been your experience in a lot of cases. I've heard many of your stories where you have prayed and prayed and prayed and asked for God to change a particular circumstance and he didn't. But in that process, somehow God was changing you. And sometimes God does change those circumstances. But I would say all of the time, God changes you, whether you know it or not. He's changing your nature. He's allowing you the ability to relate to him, to get to know him, and to understand his character is always mercy. It's never for destruction. Never for destruction. This is Jonah chapter three. All of that is packed into this one little chapter, this ancient book that sometimes we just brush right over and yet there is so much more. We could spend an entire summer talking just about this chapter alone. But what I wanna do and what I think a pastor's responsibility to do is, is to round out the whole view of God and to connect it to Jesus because that's the one we sing about. We don't have any songs about Jonah, not at least that I know of. We sing about Jesus. John stood up here and said, there's no one like you, no one like King Jesus. And so there's some connections to Jesus here from the story of Jonah that takes place hundreds of years before Jesus shows up on the scene. Sometimes Jesus is referred to as the better Jonah. He's way better than Jonah. Because what happens is when Jesus shows up on the scene, he's called to bring a message just like Jonah is called to bring a message to the city of Nineveh. But while Jonah preaches destruction, Jesus preaches something completely different. In John 3, 17, it says that for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, to destroy the world, but to save the world through him. That's a different understanding of God than what they had anticipated. And otherwise, why would Jesus have to say that? He's correcting their thinking about what God is like. God is a God of mercy. Like Jonah, Jesus too emerges from three days in darkness in a different kind of fish, a tomb. He's crucified, he's buried for three days. But when he emerges, he's not angry about the ministry that he's called to. No, he actually sends that ministry and that mission and he puts that on his followers and says, now you go and do the same. Continue in this ministry of forgiveness and reconciliation. He's a God of mercy. And like with Jonah, when Jesus carries out his mission, God shows mercy regardless of Jonah. But when Jesus carries out his mission, it's not just for a city, it's for the whole world. It's for all of humankind. He says, we're all in this boat together. A guy named Paul continues this ministry and he writes to us a church in Rome. And he says this, some of you have heard this verse, maybe growing up in churches. It says, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. We're all in the same boat together. We all experience brokenness in some way, shape, or form. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. God's default mode is mercy. Doesn't say anything about what we did to get that. That's just who God is. Extending his abounding love and grace and mercy through Jesus. Jesus is the better Jonah. And he's showing us that God is a God of mercy. And then the last thing that I think is awesome, unlike Jonah, 
who is mad. I want to just give you a heads up. I'm cheating a little bit. I'm going to the next chapter. Just the first verse though. You're going to hear about the whole chapter next week. Come back for that. It's going to be awesome. It says this change of plans. So God changing his mind. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah and he became very angry. That's an issue. That's a problem. Jonah's a horrible person. Okay. Like he's not, he's not happy about the fact that God wants to show people mercy. Uh, that, that is a problem. He's so buried in his sort of nationalistic and ethnocentric feelings that he doesn't feel that Nineveh's repentance deserves God's mercy. That's an issue. You're going to hear a little bit more about that next week. But while Jonah is that way, Jesus launches something completely different. After his death and resurrection, he sends out the church. He says, now go and do this and share this. Fulfill the call that's been on your life. But for a while, it takes them time. They think it's just about the Jewish people, just about the people that look like them and talk like them and believe like them. But then this guy named Peter, who's a follower of Jesus in his ministry, gets this vision in the book of Acts. And it's a vision. It's it's sort of bizarre, this sheet coming down and all different kinds of animals and livestock are in the sheet. And then it takes three times for Peter to get what God is trying to say. And ultimately what God is trying to say is that this ministry has to go beyond just you. The mission of Jesus has to go beyond you. The good news of Jesus that God is a God of mercy has to go beyond just you. And then he goes back to the disciples, the other apostles, and he says this. Then Peter replied, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. In every nation, he accepts those who fear him and do what is right. This book of Acts was written in the Greek language. That word nation isn't like what we think about geographical borders, those kinds of nations. That word in Greek is actually ethni, ethni, which sounds a bit like another word, doesn't it? Ethnic, ethnicities. Peter, too had this ethnocentric idea that God was only for their people. But then he recognizes that this thing is for the whole world, all people, all ethnicities. Because ultimately that's a greater picture of what it's going to look like when Jesus comes back in the kingdom of heaven. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, ethnicity gets to participate in this. So what does this book Jonah trying to tell us. What did it say to the original audience? The original, the original audience had neglected their task to be a blessing to the nations, to the ethnicities, to the people that weren't like them, but they held it all inside. They kept it to themselves. They failed at their task. And so what is it saying to us? Don't forget your task, Hosanna. Because this is my my last sermon here, what I want to leave you with is don't neglect this opportunity to multiply the hope and heartbeat of Jesus. Don't give up on your task. Don't forget what God has called you to. And even more specifically, what I feel God's put on my heart as a passion is this goes beyond just you and the people that look like you and talk like you and believe like you. There's a whole world, a colorful world, filled 
even just in Lakeville and Burnsville and the surrounding areas, multifaceted, multi-ethnic community that gets to be a part of the kingdom of God. And so what I feel so passionate about is now what I get an opportunity to go do. I'm gonna be uh, moving to Michigan and working at this church. I'm gonna get an opportunity to teach a lot. Uh, But specifically what excites me about this church is they have a very intentional effort toward racial reconciliation or ethnic reconciliation. And that is a seed that God has planted in my heart for as long as I can remember. And now it's gonna get to blossom in a whole new way. And I'm so excited to be a part of it. And yet I'm so uh, saddened to have to say goodbye. And so I have so many different kinds of emotions all weekend long. I have, it has been a privilege and an honor to serve as one of your pastors for 13 years. And so I wanna thank you and I'll bless you with a prayer. Let's pray. Thank you. Would you pray with me, please? God, thank you um, that there is excitement and inspiration in this room. God, I I feel like um, you are sending these people to go and proclaim that you're not a God of destruction, but a God of peace and a God of mercy. And God, I pray that in their interactions, in their marriages, in their homes, in their workplaces, God, that they would participate in that ministry of reconciliation that they would begin with the mindset, the default mode that you are a God of love and grace and mercy. And so God, I pray that they would feel commissioned and sent to go and to do the same. God, help us to use Jonah as a mirror to see where we have incomplete views of you, maybe incomplete views of the world, and that God, you by your spirit would round those views out, make us healthy, make us mature, allow us to grow in love so that we can multiply your hope and heartbeat. We pray that in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Thank you very much.